Welcome to Life, Love and Light. I'm Veronica Mary Rolfe and in this fourth season of our podcasts, we're examining the topic of resurrection, Christ's resurrection and our own. We will also be considering how we might live resurrected lives right now, even in the midst of our personal sufferings and pain and struggles, as well as the stark and harsh reality of a devastating war. This series of podcasts is drawn from my recent award-winning book, Living Resurrected Lives, What It Means and Why It Matters, which was co-authored by my daughter, Dr. Eva Natanya. Last week, we discussed Paul and his sudden conversion from being a rabid persecutor of the followers of Christ to the most ardent apostle of Jesus Christ. What was the turning point for Paul? His experience of seeing and hearing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We examined the first part of Paul's magnificent first letter to the newly converted Corinthians who did not believe in the resurrection of the body. We heard Paul's ringing challenge to objections of the supposedly enlightened Corinthians. Quote, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. And then we heard Paul testify with the passion of his own life of service and suffering. Quote, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For Paul, this is the rock bottom foundation of Christianity. It is the promise of our salvation the liberation of our souls and our bodies. Paul goes on to explain that since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Because resurrection from a death happened once in Christ, so every member of humankind could now, in union with Christ, be made alive again. We also examined Paul's teachings on the nature of the resurrected body. What kind of a body would it be? Would it be a natural body or a spiritual body? Paul illustrated his own understanding of the resurrected body with an analogy of a seed that must die in the ground in order to produce a living plant. To him, the idea of a transformed human body or spirit existing for all eternity without a resurrected body was simply not an option. It would not conform to the biblical concept of how God had originally created and intended the human being to be, an embodied spirit. Now, in this podcast, 
I want to continue exploring Paul's teaching on the spiritual body. Throughout his letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been building his case for resurrection based on the divine process of creation and re-creation. And now Paul directly evokes the creation story in Genesis in which, quote, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Paul references Adam as the primordial archetype of a human being. And then Paul juxtaposes Christ as the final perfection of a human person, designating him as the last Adam. Now this implies that the culmination of what it means to be human is to become like Christ and thus fully embody the Spirit of God that is the source of life itself. For Paul, the physical and mortal mode of being human, what in Greek is termed the somotsukikon, defines Adam and ordinary human existence as we know it. But this suffering and dying mode of being human must necessarily precede the spiritual mode of being fully alive, the soma pneumaticon, epitomized by the risen Christ. Continuing the archetypal analogy, Paul contrasts the first man, Adam, who was formed from the dust of the earth, with the second man, Jesus Christ, who comes directly from heaven. Again, this first man refers to the incomplete and imperfect relationship that we as human beings have with our material nature, since we're born into bodies and minds without yet understanding their nature. Thus, we emerge out of the dust of ignorance. Christ, in contrast, entered his human life directly from heaven without ever being stained by the darkness of ignorance or sin. He is the pure effulgence of divine spirit taking on a body. Furthermore, since this Lord of heaven arose from human death to a fully perfected spiritual body, then all those who are reborn in Christ can likewise be resurrected. Just as we humans have borne the mortal image of the earthly Adam, so Paul implores us to bear even now the immortal image of the man from heaven, that is, the resurrected Christ. Because of the triumph of Christ over death that has already occurred historically in the resurrection, now all humankind may look forward to resurrected life as a real possibility. In the parousia, or second coming of the risen Lord, the original creation will not only be fully restored, but far surpassed. It will be utterly transformed. The human being, originally made in the image and likeness of God, 
the awareness of which was lost through disobedience, will be remade in the image and likeness of the perfect human being, Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul attests that this is the glorious life to which we are truly destined. Quote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. As we discussed in a previous podcast, according to the philosopher Plato, the goal of life on earth was to escape the imprisonment of the body with its corruption and decay, so that the human soul would be free to enjoy heaven and immortality. To do this, Plato believed the divine essence within each individual needed to be stripped naked and the human body abandoned forever, along with its passionate nature and attachments to things of this world. For Paul, however, The goal of life is not to escape the physicality of the body insofar as it is physical, but rather to be liberated from the detrimental effects of our broken relationship with a physical world. Paul considers the unredeemed, unenlightened human soul with its tendency to spiritual blindness and pride to be the cause of the body's corruptibility. We might call this the unspiritual soul, the part of the person that is soaked in ignorance, the part of the mind that completely misunderstands its own nature. We simply do not see the immense complexity of factors that brings our precise array of experiences into being in each moment. Nor do we comprehend the depth of divine creativity that enables anything to exist at all. Yet we continue to think and act as though everything were really just the way it appears to the senses and the conceptual mind. And all these mistaken perceptions drive us to shore up a sense of autonomy Such a mentality falsely conceives itself to be independent, able to exist and function on its own without taking full responsibility for its actions in the face of the divine order. Inevitably, our deep ignorance leads to wrong thoughts and poor choices that manifest both in sinful actions and in the sufferings they engender. Ultimately, it is our misunderstanding of the very nature of our material and psychological existence that impels the malign forces that gradually demean the body, cast it down, dishonor it, and cause it shame. And death is the final sign of our inability to engage with the material world from the divine 
perspective. For we have not yet been able to recognize it exactly as it is being created by God in each and every moment. According to one scholar, Paul, quote, sees that the true solution to the human plight is to replace the soul as the animating principle of the body with the spirit, or rather, the spirit with a capital S, that is, the Holy Spirit. Thus, in order to be resurrected in a spiritual body, we must become divinized in our very core. The second letter of Peter speaks of Christ's divine power that has, quote, given us everything needed for life and godliness. Furthermore, according to Peter, we have received Christ's own, quote, precious and very great promises that we may become participants of the divine nature. So the mind with which we think must become the spirit of Christ, not a mere human mind. And for Paul, this means that through baptism, our very nature must be clothed anew with Christ. Quote, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This radically new clothing will be, in effect, the spiritual body. Now, this spiritual body defines the transformed human person who has died completely to sin and lives in the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Christ's resurrected body, which is the promise and the model of our own, our spiritual body will be capable of knowing with the mind of Christ, of loving with Christ's love, of envisioning God and all created things through the eyes of Christ, of hearing the divine words spoken in and through everything that exists, of conversing and acting from the perspective of authentic wisdom, of appearing and disappearing at will. Our spiritual body will be incorruptible, meaning that it cannot decay. It will be free of physical defects and immortal, meaning it can never die again. It will be filled with honors and rejoice in its own vast powers. It will experience the new creation and engage with other resurrected bodies in exalted ways that cannot possibly be imagined now. As Paul writes, quote, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. For Paul, the resurrected, divinized, spiritual body is the fully actualized human person.
clothed in a transformed physicality, animated through and through by the Spirit of God, the heart of divine love. Now, who will attain a spiritual body? In his earlier letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had written that he fully expected to be alive when Christ returned. Quote, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. How would the bodies of the living be resurrected along with those that had already died? Paul answered this conundrum by sharing a personal revelation concerning divine mystery. He was certain that, quote, even the living will undergo transformation into a new form, receiving their resurrection bodies without having to pass through death. And then, referencing the rapturous symbolism of both Jewish apocalyptic literature and the prediction by Jesus of the Son of Man coming in the clouds at the Parousia, Paul writes, Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? is your sting. With this summation, Paul imparts his vision of how it is that the bodies of those who've already died and those who are still alive at the end of the world will both be completely changed. In a moment of divine transformation, the mortal body will be clothed in immortality, the corruptible flesh will become incorruptible, and then both the living and the dead will rise to eternal life. Paul's theology here is based on his understanding of what caused human mortality in the first place. The sting of death is sin. And because sin disobeys and works in contradiction to the perfect law of God, sin is what produces all our suffering and eventually our death. Under the old law, the twisted nature of sin condemned us all, and as a result, all of us will have to die. However, by willingly taking our sins onto himself in death, the Savior revealed how death could be an act of perfect divine compassion purifying sins through the crucible of suffering, 
while entering the apparent annihilation of death without fear. Surrendering his spirit completely to the Father without grasping either to his divinity or to his human identity. Christ unveiled the layer of our own existence in which the ultimate source of life can never be lost. And then arising from death into a new kind of body, his resurrection is the promise of what human nature could be once completely purified of sin and all its causes, which are so deeply rooted in ignorance. In essence, Christ canceled for us the ultimate cause of death. Why then do we still have to die? Because in order to experience what Christ enacted in his perfect death, we must follow his example in every way. If we imitate him in the limitless compassion and surrender of his death, then like Christ we too shall be able to rise in a transformed body. Paul concludes with an impassioned plea to the Corinthians, quote, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. These are ringing words, entirely applicable to every Christian today. In a similar way, Paul had exhorted the Galatians to do good works. Quote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. In his letters to both the Corinthians and Galatians, Paul traces a continuum between the earthly life that Christians are living now with the resurrected life to come. The apostle is insistent that the work of the Lord we do every single day will have a direct correlation to the eternal gifts we will receive in the consummation and recreation of the world. The manner in which we see, listen, and speak. The acts of devotion and the service that we perform. The spiritually enlightened mind and compassionate heart that we endeavor to cultivate in this life. These are the immediate preparation 
for the seeing, hearing, speaking, serving, knowing, and loving that we will enact in a resurrected body at the end of time as we know it. And that is why the way in which we choose to live our earthly lives right now is so important. In spite of all current frustrations, obstacles, and even failures, believers continue to do the work of the Lord and trust that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And we try not to grow weary in doing what is right and to work for the good of all. So faith in the resurrection gives meaning, eternal meaning, to even the smallest of our efforts. We know that nothing will be forgotten. Everything, joys, sorrows, losses, disappointments, rejections, physical and emotional suffering of every kind, including great tragedy, will be transformed. In 1 Corinthians, Paul presents a tour de force of resurrection theology to explain to Christians then and now through whose power the dead will be raised to new bodily life. Quote from Luke, For nothing will be impossible with God. For Paul, the concept of the spiritual body was still and always a body, a human person, a unity of physicality and consciousness, completely transformed by the Spirit of God. The corruptible body must be left behind only in order that the incorruptible body might replace it. For Paul, the sting of sin and the curse of death were the intruders between the human and the divine, not the physical body. And he writes, quote, When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then, in his second letter to the Corinthians, which scholars believe was written about 55 or 56 of the Common Era, Paul again exhorts the faithful not to lose hope. Christians carry the treasure of belief in the risen Lord in clay jars, their fallible and mortal bodies, quote, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. In addition, the faithful must also be keenly aware that they bear within themselves the cross of Christ. Paul writes, quote, 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. The striking oppositions of death and life, which are so real to us every single day, are of the utmost importance to Paul's theological vision. Furthermore, Paul acknowledges that he personally has, quote, taken on suffering for the sake of the Corinthians so that they might be filled with the spirit of life. He writes, so death is at work in us, but life in you. He identifies himself with all those who have gone through terrible suffering, even to the point of death, yet not lost faith in God's power at work. He writes, I believed, and so I spoke. This affirmation echoes the cry of Psalm 116, quote, I kept my faith even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Like the psalmist, Paul had been plunged into physical and spiritual torment during his decades of missionary work, most especially during his more than three years in Ephesus from about 53 to 56 of the Common Era. He must have prayed often, Psalm 116, quote, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. But in referencing this psalm, Paul also affirms that God, quote, delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. For Paul, the sufferings of the present life bear witness to a very physical dying with Christ that is essential in order for us to rise with him in glory. Quote, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. And thus Paul writes, quote, so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Paul implies that through willing endurance of our bodily pains and the mental agonies that wear us down, without grasping to them or feeling sorry for ourselves about them, our spiritual nature is growing more and more Christ-like. Every time we suffer with faith, abandoning any identification with our sufferings as the real me, 
we can die a little more with Christ and also rise a little more into union with him, even in this life and in this body. While in our mortal bodies, these two aspects of dying and rising in Christ are inseparable. And no one knows this better than Paul. Later in this letter to the Corinthians, he will even boast like a fool in what he has suffered for Christ. Nevertheless, Paul is convinced that everything he and we have endured in our mortal flesh for the sake of Christ will be rewarded in our immortal body. He concludes this section with a soaring act of hope in resurrection as the goal not only of his life, but of all life. Quote, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. And then Paul switches from the metaphor of the body as a clay jar to that of a temporary and disposable covering, such as a tent or clothing. He assures us that even though our earthly tent is being dissolved day by day, yet, quote, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This new house will be our resurrected body, fashioned for us by God. And nevertheless, considering the human condition, Paul is ever the realist. He admits that even though we live in daily hope of attaining this resurrected body, still we suffer and complain while housed in this perishable tent of our earthly body. Quote, For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, if indeed when we've taken it off we will not be found naked. That is, when our mortal body has been cast off in death, we do not want to be left unclothed without a body at all. We do not wish to become disembodied souls as did the Greeks. Some ancient manuscripts have an alternate reading for 2 Corinthians 5 verse 3. Quote, For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, if indeed when we have put it on we will not be found naked. In this case, Paul would be implying that we long to put on, like new clothing, the incorruptible body of resurrection over our corrupted body so that we will no longer be found naked in the grave. Rather, Paul continues, we want to be, quote, further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And this further clothing is the resurrected body. 
It is possible that this version suggests that Paul might be thinking of an interim state of disembodied consciousness following death before the resurrected body is given at the last judgment. Paul assures his readers that God has prepared us for this very thing and, quote, given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And this is how Paul wants us to anticipate the resurrected life, even in our present predicament. Here Paul introduces a note of poignancy. By this time it seems clear that he had become reconciled with the distinct possibility that he will die before the parousia, the expected return of the risen Lord in glory. Yet he feels a holy impatience, an overwhelming longing for eternal life. He implies that our very real confidence in resurrection actually means we would rather be, quote, away from the earthly body and at home with the Lord. In this, he does not denigrate living in the natural body, not at all. It is only that our current exiled, unspiritual embodiment keeps us from being, quote, at home with the Lord. However, he counsels that whether we are away from the Lord in our mortal body or at home with the Lord, once we receive our immortal body, quote, we make it our aim to please him. And this is because we will all appear before the Lord at the judgment to receive just recompense for whatever we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some scholars have suggested that here Paul is abandoning his insistence on a resurrected body and revealing a hidden platonic desire to escape the earthly body in order to become a disembodied soul at home with God. Indeed, the apostles' previous distinctions between the seen and the unseen, the temporary and the eternal, the earthly body and the heavenly body, the present age and the age to come could be interpreted as espousing a platonic dualism. However, Paul only uses these terms in an eschatological sense, that is, relating to death, judgment, and the final destiny of humankind. He does not use these binary terms in an ontological sense that focuses on the nature of being itself. Paul is restating the same duality that he highlighted in 1 Corinthians between the sinful, suffering, and decaying mortal body and the redeemed, impassable, and glorified immortal body. For Paul, the concept of the spiritual body was still and always a body a human person, a unity of physicality and consciousness completely transformed by the Spirit of God. 
and the corruptible body must be left behind only in order that the incorruptible body might replace it. Furthermore, this body that we shall be given will be fully incorporated into Christ's mystical body. Earlier in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had characterized those baptized into Christ and who receive him in Eucharist as becoming united to Christ's own body. Quote, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul further elaborates the intimate nature of this divine human union. Quote, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Thus Paul thought of the church and all who believe as being, quote, the body of Christ and individually members of it. We drink of one spirit in Christ. It courses through our veins. It informs everything we are. In fact, Paul viewed the spiritual life we live in Christ right now as the sublime foretaste of the spiritual body that will be fully actualized in the resurrection. And then each one of us will see ourselves as the embodiment of a unique aspect of Christ's mystical body that only we as individuals are able to express. And this as a result of the unique lives we have lived, the good works we've done, sufferings we have endured, the hope we've held on to, the love we've poured out. And finally, it will be by love that we will look into the mirror of eternity and view ourselves as images of Christ. Paul was convinced that the ultimate victory of divine love over sin and death would reestablish the original goodness of materiality, most especially in the way that matter manifests as a purified and glorified human body beyond our current experience of what it means to be physical. Moreover, this victory would mean liberation, not only for human beings, but for all living creatures, indeed for the whole cosmos. Quote, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. In Christ Jesus, the entire creation, heaven and earth, will be radically transformed so that God may be all in all. This was Paul's comprehensive and sublime eschatology. Quote, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. As mentioned earlier, these podcasts are based on themes from my newest book, Living Resurrected Lives, What It Means and Why It Matters, co-authored with my daughter, Dr. Eva Natanya. This book won the 2021 Catholic Media Association Book Award for Contemporary Spirituality. If you would like to read more and need information about purchasing Living Resurrected Lives, please visit my website, veronicamaryrolf.com. The book is available in paperback and as an ebook from the publisher, Whip and Stock, and also from Amazon and other bookstores worldwide. Next week, we will dig into the controversial topic of how our bodies will rise from the dust. Even with all Paul's explanations of what a transformed spiritual body had to be, he did not address the thorny problem of how resurrection of the body would actually occur. Would every single atom of the corrupted corpse have to be reassembled by God to form such a resurrected body? So we will consider, how will the physical dust and bones of the corpse arise? What happens to the soul after death? And most important, wherein lies the human identity of each individual? These are problems that have plagued church fathers and theologians over many centuries of Christian history. They generate an extremely heated and controversial argument. You won't want to miss it. Please be sure to register for notifications of these ongoing podcasts and tell your friends about them too. So until next week, I wish you all the blessings of divine life, love, and light.